You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Amen. (laughs) I was so... uh, Honored that Derek asked me to step in for him this morning. Uh, we were both in San Antonio this weekend for a funeral. He stayed there to teach in Taryn Phillips Church. And, uh, but you know, even though he's not here, he still had to get his face in here, didn't he? You know? I mean, oh well, you know, I can remember, uh, I can remember those days. I gotta, I gotta tell you a funny story. Um, a couple weeks ago, it was right after Christmas, Anita Gustafson, how many of you know Anita? Okay, her husband's a pilot for FedEx. Okay, Anita Gustafson came up to me. She said, James, I, I, this week I was in the grocery store and I'd have sworn I saw you. It was a man kind of walking away from me. He said, look like you, same build. And it even looked like it had an eye patch strapped behind his, his, his head. And, and I said, well, did you, did you go up and tweak him on the rear end? And, and she said, well, no. I said, well, you should have. And when he turned around, you could have said, excuse me, I thought you were my pastor. (laughs) He would have said, where is that church? (laughs) What time do y'all meet? Uh, I just had to share that. I love that. I love when life gives you moments, you know, where you just got to, you know, life's too short. You got to laugh, right? And uh, so I'm thankful to be able to be with you this morning. Um, A whole lot of stuff is happening. I have a couple of big uh, things happening now in January with the Fearless Series for Women, uh, communicating with California Baptists as well as with Tennessee Baptists. Uh, there are sex abuse task forces that are asking me to come and teach churches in, in their state uh, about how to minister within the local church, help, hope, and healing to, to men and women who are survivors of sexual abuse. I'll be traveling to Mississippi uh, February the 6th and the 7th to teach in two regions of the state where churches in those regions will come together for a day of training and equipping. And then they're going to have me back in September. I'm not sure why they split it up like that, but in September I'll come back and do two more regions uh, of that, uh, of Mississippi. Uh, And communicating with Texas Baptist right now, Tennessee, Arkansas, and as I said, California, and there are a couple of other states that are in line. So this year, 2023, uh, Bodes to be a very exciting year for training churches how to do what we've been doing for 30 years here, which is help men and women who are survivors of sexual abuse to find healing and to find help, hope, and healing and through the Fearless Series for Women and the Fearless Series for Men. By the way, um, the Fearless Series for Men, we finished filming, I've been editing, and uh, we, are, we are planning to have that released uh, in March, uh, hopefully. Uh, churches all over the country are waiting for that to come out, and so hopefully... Uh, we'll be able to get that done. And, and as I go, uh, you, you know this, I've said this a thousand times before, but as I go, I go as an extension of this ministry because this is where this all happened. And this is where I learned this. And this is where I came to understand all of these things about the need in, in my own life and the need in other people's lives. And I look around here and I see women that have participated in, the, in this whole experience of healing from sexual abuse that they received as little girls and now are walking in freedom and walking in health and hope and, and have taught me. They schooled me, actually, which enabled me to be able to produce the Fearless Series for Women. And so I just want to say thank you. And as I go, I, I, uh, I sing the praises of City on a Hill in Fort Worth, Texas. You're known all over the nation. You really are. And, you know, which is interesting, we're not a megachurch. And uh, it's wonderful that God can do something in a place 
that doesn't have to be a megachurch, right? And, uh, but your, your ministry is extending literally, well, now into other countries, um, uh, other places. Uh, so uh, just thank you for, for allowing me to be with you for these almost 38 years that I was the senior pastor here. And, um, and I'm thankful that God has raised up Derek now to carry this work into the next generation. I want to speak to you this morning uh, about change. Actually, really, I want to speak to you about the fact that God never changes. You know, we come into 2023, and, and how many of you just kind of feel like so much changed in 2022? You know, we say that every year, don't we? And the year before, I mean, I can always remember that every year, so much changes in that year. And you, almost, you kind of go out of the old year into the new year, just thinking, you know, your head just kind of swimming. I've seen all those memes that have been posted out on, on Facebook and out on social media, looking forward to 2023, you know, maybe with hope that things are going to settle down. And, and let me just, I, I don't know, let me just say it, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> you know, Bob Dylan's song that, he wrote in 1964, still appropriate today. He said, come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. Wow. Your time to you, is it worth saving? Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a changing. Man, isn't that appropriate? It was appropriate 60 years ago when it was released in 1964. It's appropriate today. It'll be appropriate next year because change is something that is inevitable. In fact, I heard someone say, change is inevitable in everything except vending machines. <laughs> now, that's a mystery. Why don't vending machines work with this thing? They just don't seem to do it. But when you think about change, think about how much we really have experienced. Just not only in the last year, but I just think about how much I've experienced in my lifetime, how much information has changed. There was once upon a time in human history that the information, the knowledge base changed only or doubled only about once a century. And then it went to where it was doubling about once a generation. And it feels like today that the, the knowledge base is doubling on a weekly basis in our culture today. When a science book is published, it's already out of date. They're already having to add addendums to it because that information is changing so quickly. Technology changes. It's changing and actually our knowledge base is able to ex grow exponentially primarily because of technology. Have you bought a computer lately? How many of you bought a computer lately, this year? It's out of date. <laughs> it's already out of date. It's, just, it's the truth, I mean that's sad, but by the time you bring it home, they're already, technology has already grown and has increased. And they tell us that there's more computing power in your little iPhone. And all of God's people carry an iPhone, right? Is there some of you others were praying for you? But there is more computing technology in your iPhone than there was in that mainframe computer that put men on the moon. And now it's right there contained within our hands. I, folks, when I was in graduate school, I actually had to go to a library to do research. I tell Derek, Derek's in the doctor program. I said, Derek, when I was in the doctor program, I had to actually get in my truck, drive to the seminary library, and pull books off the shelf. And he doesn't have to do that anymore. But that's because technology has changed so much. Neighborhoods change. Laura and I moved into our home 32 years ago, 1991. And every house on our street has turned over at least four or five times in the 32 years that we have lived there. 
And that's not unusual. They tell us that if you live in a home more than five years, then you are the exception, not the rule. And in that time that we've lived in that house, we have had, a, we, well, well, there was a wonderful young couple that lived next door to us when we moved in. In fact, we became very dear friends with them, was privileged to be able to lead them to faith in Christ. They were baptized right here in, in, in this church. And then they moved off. He became an executive with the Pepsi-Cola company. Uh, he has an MBA from TCU. And we've kept in touch with them through the years. Chris and Shelley, some of you remember Chris and Shelley, a handful of you perhaps do. And then after them, an elderly widow moved in there for years and years she was there. And when she passed away, her family then rented it to some drug dealers. <laughs> Seriously, you remember me telling the story a few years ago of, of that morning when I woke up and, and the SWAT team and the DEA were out in my yard and, and her yard. And, and I'm going, wow, this is cool. And the guy said, you might want to go in. I said, no, man, I want to watch the show. <laughs> You know, and uh, they hauled her out. She did the perp walk and she's in penitentiary now. And, but now we have a young couple that have bought the home and they've just recently had a baby. So we have six grandbabies now. We have five of our own and we have the next one because she doesn't know what she's doing. And, and uh, they're, they're an African-American couple and we've just become, they've, well, they're the same age as my kids. And, and uh, her name is Shelly. And she said to my wife, she said, you know, you're the craziest white woman I've ever known. But, and she is, she's the craziest white woman I've ever known. But, but Shelly and, and Stefan, uh, you know, they just love her. They tolerate me, but they love her. And, and so she's kind of the surrogate grandmother to that little baby uh, boy that was born. And so, you know, it's, it's strange though. Everyone has changed and yet here we are. We've just stayed there. I'm just stubborn. I hate debt, so I'm not going to do it. So we're going to stay there. We're going to go down with the ship right here. But not only that, but people change. How many times have I heard a woman say, you know, of her husband, he just isn't the same guy I married. And that's usually not meant as a compliment. And I don't say it, but I think, well, he probably is. You just didn't do enough research. <laughs> I heard the story of a woman who went to the mall and she saw a woman that she thought she knew. And she said, hey, Helen, Helen, how are you doing? Why, you've changed the color of your hair. You've got a nose job and you're, you're thinner and you look taller. And the woman said, my name is not Helen. And she said, well, guess what? You even changed your name. <laughs> Change is everywhere. I have a bone to pick with Mallory Mickle. She put out on Facebook a nasty picture from the past. Now, Mallory was a little snot-nosed brat. She's now married and she's a mother now. But uh, this is, you recognize that couple? You recognize? <laughs> Man, do you? Can you see? The little boy is 37 and the girl is 40 years old now, okay? And you can tell it was in the 90s because of my wife's hairdo. But can you see how uncomfortable that young pastor is in that suit? Can you see the mold that around him that he is being squeezed into? That he eventually broke and morphed out of that cocoon into the beautiful butterfly <laughs> that he became. <laughs> I look at that picture. Honestly, I look at that picture and I ask myself, when did I get old? Seriously. And, and you, you understand that feeling, don't you? You, you look at, you look at, are you, man, you, you, your shaver, you know, the electric shaver and you pop it open and all of the stuff in there is gray. 
You know, when did, when did that happen? It feels like that was just yesterday. The point is, what I'm trying to understand, help you understand is that everything is changing around. The times, they are changing. But the good news that I wanted to deliver to you this morning is that our God never changes. Theologians call that concept the immutability of God. Just simply means, immutability means unchanging. Our God never changes. Malachi, the prophet, chapter 3, verse 6 says, For the Lord does not change. Our text this morning in James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or of shifting shadow. Now you think about it. There's no variation with our God. His shadow never shifts. There is no shifting of shadow. There is never a change in our God. How could he change? How could he get better? He's already perfect. How could he know more? He's already omniscient. How could he go more places? He's already omnipresent. How could he be more powerful? He is already omnipotent. As we would say in West Texas, he's omnipotent. (laughs) He never changes. Now some messages, messages have different reasons based upon the text or the subject. Some messages are meant to convict. Some messages are meant to correct from some behavior. Some messages are called, meant to call God's people to action. And some messages are simply meant to comfort God's people. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to teach a pastoral message of comfort. Comfort. What does it mean? What should it, what should it mean for me that with my God there is no shifting or shadow, that he is immutable, that he cannot, that he will not change? Well, it means quite simply this that you can attach your life to him in Christ Jesus and in the sea of change that is always around us, you can have an anchor for your life. If he never changes, then that means four things for us. It means, first of all, that his love for us never changes. If he never changes, then his love for us never changes. Jeremiah said that to the Old Testament people of God in Jeremiah 31. He said, the Lord says to his people, I have loved you, get this, with an everlasting love. In other words, it doesn't change. It doesn't fade out. It doesn't go away. His love is consistent. It never changes. His love is continual. It never ends. And Paul then carries that theme into the eighth chapter of Romans where he is trying to communicate to the Roman church, the Christians in the city of Rome, how immutable God is and how wonderful God's love is. And he's reaching, he's grasping for ways to communicate this. And finally, it's just like under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he just lets go and here it comes. He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love never changes because he is immutable. You see, what we have a tendency to do is we observe how fickle human love is, and it is, we all agree with that, we're imperfect in the way that we love and the way that we express our love. The way that we express our love to others, the way that others have expressed their love or the lack thereof to us. Because human love is fickle. And we have a tendency to project upon God that same fickle nature of human love. Because it's true, you can be someone's hero today and you can be their zero tomorrow. 
Someone can be your friend today and can be your foe tomorrow. And so we project that upon God. And so we know that love is fickle in the human experience. So therefore, God's love must somehow also be like that. In filming the Fearless series for men, I heard over and over from these men as Michael and I traveled all over the country meeting and filming men for that series that's going to hopefully be out in March. Over and over how men in their struggle after their trauma from childhood, whether it was sexual abuse, oftentimes it was, sometimes extreme emotional abuse, sometimes physical abuse, but out of that trauma, they began to just develop these maladaptive ways to exist and oftentimes it was pornography, it was sexual addiction, it was anger, it was all of these kinds of things. And how they expressed that all of their life until they got into recovery, they knew that people would not love them if they really knew who they were. Because you see, they had these secrets, they had these maladaptive ways of existing that they knew were, could not present publicly, so they had to live with these skeletons in the closet. And they just knew, they were convinced that if anyone ever really knew who they were, they certainly would not love them. And so they took that and they projected that upon God and said, well, he does know who I really am, so certainly he could not love me. Over and over and over, I heard men tell that, that story, often with tears. And then what they said is that when they got into recovery and they began to deal with the trauma uh, from childhood and they began to walk in freedom over those maladaptive ways of behaving, they began to understand that God had loved them all along. And one of them is a regional uh, group director, regional uh, group supervisor for Pure Desire Ministry out of Portland, Oregon. His name is James Janikin. He's a layman. He's not in ministry full time. He's uh, an engineer, I believe. But as James told the story, listen to what he said. He said, you know, as a Christian, whenever I pictured heaven, I would picture this long banquet table. And I was sitting way at the end. And if I put on my binoculars, I might catch a glimpse of Christ at the head of the table. But you know, I'm in the nosebleeds. I'm at the end of the table. I'm with the unmentionables of people who got in by the grace of God and by Jesus' sacrifice. But you know, we're part of the family that you don't talk about. You got some of those? And he says, and now, and, and emotion, I could see the emotion beginning to build him. You'll see it on film. And now I know, I've seen that I am God's son and that I am fully loved and his child and he desires a dinner with me. Only me. Nobody else. You see, because what James had done his whole life is what we often do, is he knew who he was and what he was hiding and, and he believed and knew probably for certain that if people really knew who he was, most of them would not love him. So therefore, God could not love him either. And he came to understand that the love of his father was consistent. It was immutable. It was unchanging. He loved him when he was there and he loves him now. Amen? That's what the immutability of God means. Second of all, it means that his perspective never changes. The father's perspective about how he sees things is consistent. Ours is not. You see, because the father sees the end before it's the end. He sees the end while it's still the beginning. He sees the present, he sees the past, and he sees the future. And he knew the past, what it was before it was the past, and he knows the future, 
before it now becomes our present. Did you catch all of that? Just figure it out. He knows it all. His perspective is always the same. And I always love this picture of how God's perspective differs from ours when you think of a parade. The parade is going to come through town and you you stake out your little spot there on the curb and and you're waiting there for the parade to start and you begin to hear music. You can't see anything yet. You can just hear it because it's, it's around the corner. But eventually it comes around and you can see it. And what you see is the part of the parade that's right here, right in front of you. And then as it moves on and goes around the corner, you can't see that anymore. And that is our perspective of the past, the present, and the future. We see that which is only right here. But our God, who looks at it from here, sees the parade from a whole different perspective, doesn't he? He sees the beginning of the parade. He sees where the parade is at any moment. And he sees where the parade is going to end. So our God has a perspective that is holistic. And we only see that which is in front of us. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 and 14 The prophet says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of God's hand? In other words, hey, you, a human, have you measured the waters of the earth? I mean, they're contained in the hand of God. Have you measured that? Can you do that? And who marked off the heavens by their span? And who calculated the dust of the earth by the measure? And weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Have you given the... the Lord direction or who as his counselor has informed him and with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding those are rhetorical questions and the answer is no one why because his perspective is so much greater he sees the past he sees the present and he sees the future all at the same time Hebrews 13 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Folks, what that means is he is the Lord of the past. He is the Lord of the present. And make no mistake about it, he is the Lord of the future. Now, let's let's dig in here for just a moment, okay? Because I don't want to just leave it there. I want to make it personal. Let's think about it for a moment. Think about it in terms of James Janikin that I interviewed for the Fearless series. And yourself. He is the Lord of your yesterday. He is the Lord of your past. Now, what does that mean? It means that my past is not too big for him to handle. Sometimes I hear people say things like, you know, God could not forgive my past. Oh, your past is too big for the creator of heaven and earth. Is that right? Wow, you really have a big opinion of yourself, don't you? You really think you're something, don't you? Your past is too big for the... God of heaven and earth to do anything with? No. Because he is Lord over my past, I can invite him into those dark places of my past. And and you know what he can do? He can do with what he did with James and what he's done with me and what he's done with so many of you. He can take all of that failure, he can take all of that sin, and he can throw it into, as the psalmist says, he can throw it into the sea of his forgetfulness. And I added this and put up a no fishing sign. I wish God had inspired the psalmist to go on to say that. He didn't. But he can cast that into the sea of his forgetfulness. He can can go into the data bank of my past, hit the delete button, and by his grace, wipe it clean. Isn't that good news? That's the immutability of God. Jeremiah 31, 34, the Lord reminds his 
people of what he will do with their past. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. But not only is he the Lord of the past, he's the Lord of today. That means that today I can consult him as I walk through the day. And he can and he will direct me. Not only can he, but hear this, he will direct me. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. How many times have I in my life, I'm 68 now, I came to Christ when I was 18, off the streets, I'm 50 years into the faith. How many times in my life have I looked back on a time and thought, wow, when I was in that moment, it looked like my path was very, very crooked. But God says he will make my path straight. But when I was in the midst of that, man, there wasn't anything straight about that. But now I can look at that and can I go, it was so arrow straight for where God knew I needed to be and what he needed to do in me. But in the moment, in my perspective, I look at that and I go, that is so crooked. God is saying, wait, uh, my child, understand, I am preparing you for a moment. And it may look that way today, but trust me, you're going to look back. And you're going to see how straight it really was. And he has never failed to do that in my life. Or yours, if you take the time to look, if you're in Christ. He is not only Lord of the present and the past, he is Lord of tomorrow. Another one of the interviews that I did for the Fearless Series for Men is Rodney Wright. Rodney was a pastor for 25 years. He left the pastorate. One out of 10 of us, they tell us, will actually retire in the ministry that go through seminary. Only one out of 10. I'd be darned if I was going to be one of those nine, so I made it. Just out of sheer old stubbornness. Rodney was one that didn't, but God has continued to use him. Rodney was abused as a child. Rodney carried that in his ministry. That was a part of his testimony as a pastor that he never told anyone. But it resulted in some of those maladaptive behaviors that that he began to use. And pornography and sex addiction was one of those things that he carried through the ministry. He carried through his life. And then Rodney now at this time in his life is ministering to other men some of them pastors who are struggling with abuse and their trauma in their own past. And this is what Rodney said. I love this. Rodney's a good guy. We speak at conferences together. I've known him for several years. He said, I have seen firsthand men and women who have owned their brokenness. That brokenness that they thought was just the worst thing in their life. And they ran from it, hoping to outlive it. You know, those secrets, and those maladaptive behaviors, those, those things. We just run from it, run from it, and just somehow I'm going to outlive that. He said, I've seen men do that. But then he says this. He says, but when you turn and you run toward that brokenness, God meets you there with that grace to process it and own it. And then this is what Rodney said. I love this. He said, then I find you get a chance to write a brave new ending. 
You see, you don't get to write a new ending as long as you're running from your brokenness. You don't get to do it. There is a, there's a track record. We can tell you, I can tell you where your story is going to end when you run from your brokenness. It's clear. We've done it millions of times. I can tell you that story. But when you choose to run, not run from your brokenness, but turn and run to your brokenness, the grace of God is able to enter in and allow, enable you to write a whole new ending. Isn't that wonderful? That's because he is the Lord of your brokenness when you give it to him. Third, his word never changes. I, <laughs> I said this at a conference a while back with a group of men. I was talking about this very subject. When we say, God, you can't fix my life. God, you can't take this brokenness mess that I've made and take something good about it. And Jesus says, hold my beer and watch. <laughs> and the guys appreciated that, so I thought I'd share it with you. His word never changes. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now listen, folks, God's word needs to be the anchor of your life. Therefore, in the midst of these changing trends, these changing fads, these changing ideologies, these changing worldviews, and all of the social upheaval that we're in the midst of, God's word never changes. And that's because God's word is not subject to trends. It is not subject to fads. It is not subject to changing ideologies or worldviews or social upheaval. It is unchanging. God's word never changes. Now, during all, all of the upheaval of the last few years that we've all lived through, those that are here lived through it, Derek and I taught a series of messages while we were still team teaching as I was preparing him to transition into this role of senior pastor so I could go out the back door and do what God has called me to do for the rest of my life. Derek and I taught a series of messages about the worldview upon which all of this is based. Now, this gets academic. It gets a bit intellectual. And so I'm going to make it as understandable as I possibly can. And it is easily understood in its simplicity. There is a worldview that dominates academia, because this is where all the change happens. It starts in, in, in the intellectual realm, in the university level. Then it makes its way down into the secondary school level and ultimately into the elementary level. And then you have an entire generation that is indoctrinated in a worldview and it becomes cultural. That's why the communists said, give me one generation and I will change your culture. One generation. Just give me your children for one generation and I will change it all. It's called postmodernism. Postmodernism at its root, there are many things it says. It relates to art, it relates to a lot of things. But the part that we're interested in is postmodernism at its root teaches that there is no such thing as objective truth. And by objective truth, what I mean is that there is no truth that stands as true in and of itself, whether anyone accepts it or not. It is true. Postmodernism rejects objective truth. Nothing is true in and of itself. Now that shift has been happening over the past hundred years, very specifically in America, from what 
Intellectuals called modernity. So we have post-modernity, and before that was modernity. But the, the interesting thing about it is modernity, that worldview, accepts the unmitigated existence of objective truth. In fact, it was a modernity worldview upon which then this nation was based. That's why this nation was based upon Judeo-Christian principles. Not that all of the founders were Christians, but they believed that God's word was objective truth. Therefore, they built this nation upon that truth. Now, we have moved from a modern view, ideology, that accepts the existence of, of objective truth into a postmodern ideology and worldview that says, no, there is no such thing as objective truth. There is your truth and there is my truth. Now, when I made that statement, you've heard that. You all grinned, right? Because you've heard that. Well, that's your truth and my truth. That is a postmodern statement. That statement is based upon the ideology and the worldview of postmodernism. It would have never been made. We would have never used that kind of terminology 100 years ago, your truth and my truth. We would just say there's truth because we accepted in our culture the existence of objective truth. So truth today is what you decide it is. Truth is completely subjective now. It is what you say it is. There's your truth, there's my truth. Here's the problem. Our Christian faith is based upon the foundation of objective truth, which is the word of God, which never changes. And it is objective because it stands as truth whether you believe it or not. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with anyone. It stands in its very character and its very nature. It is true. It's not your truth. It's not my truth. It is the truth. And our faith is based upon the objective reality of the truth of God's word. So therefore, our culture, which is a postmodern culture, must do what? Must reject the word of God, of the Christian faith. Our culture rejects the Bible as God's word because it says, it actually it makes an, uh, uh, an objective truth statement which says there is no such thing as an objective truth, right? So you must understand this conflict, that there can be no compromise between the two. Thus, our faith is at an increasing system of conflict in our culture. And the question for every one of us Christ followers is will you compromise God's objective truth in order to amalgamate yourself with our culture's subjective truth? Will you build your life upon the objective truth of God or will you build your life upon the postmodern subjective truth of our culture? It cannot be both. It cannot. In fact, Jesus closed this sermon on the mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 2,000 years ago, as Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he closed with an illustration of the difference between modernity and postmodernity, of modernism and postmodernism, which the words were not even in existence at the time. But here it was. Jesus had taught for three chapters there on the hillside. And he said, if you hear my word and you do them, you're like a wise builder who is built upon a rock. And when the storm comes, when the rain falls and the winds blow and come against it, it stands 
because it was built upon a rock. That is modernity. Why would that man go not only and hear Jesus' words, but why would he do Jesus' words? Because he accepted them as truth. He accepted them as the objective truth from the Son of God. So he says, I've heard, I must do. Jesus says, you're a wise person. You are building your life upon this rock and the storms will not bring it down. But he says, he who comes and hears my words and does not do them, he's like a foolish builder who builds his house upon the sand. And when the rains fall and the winds blow and come against it, it is washed away. And the the word that... Jesus uses in the Greek text, the original language of the New Testament, carries this idea that it's as if it never existed. It's just gone. There's no sign. There's no foundation left that the house was swept off. Uh, A tornado didn't lift it off, but you still see the foundation. There's nothing, nothing, because it was built upon sand. Wow, that's a powerful illustration, isn't it? Why would that man not do Jesus' words after he heard them because he did not accept them as true. He goes, you know, I've got a truth and I'm just going to build my life on my truth. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, you fool. That's building on sand. Your truth means nothing. Absolutely nothing. In recent years, it looked pretty rough for those churches who stood upon God's truth on issues that our culture and our culture become hot buttons. Issues of human sexuality. God's plan for marriage. And what has happened is that many churches sold out and rejected God's objective truth and bought in and amalgamated the subjective truth of postmodernism in in order to try to be at peace with the culture, in order to try to be at peace with our society. And you know what's happening? And what is beginning to happen now, most of you do not realize this because you don't keep up with it, but I research this kind of stuff. I want to know what's the condition of churches in America. And those churches who have caved over the last several years into the social pressure and have compromised the truth of God, you know what's beginning to happen? They're beginning to close their doors. They are beginning to close their doors. Literally closing their doors and selling the property. Bible-believing Methodist churches are leaving the United Methodist denomination by the thousands as we speak. There are lawsuits flying from the denomination trying to keep them from doing it. By the thousands, Bible-believing Methodist churches are saying, we no longer want to associate with that because you have left the word of God. There are still some Bible-believing Methodist churches, folks. There really are. And what they are doing is they are growing and reaching people and these are dying. Why? Because when you strip the Christian faith of its foundation, you have nothing left. United Presbyterian, same thing. Episcopalian, for decades they've been doing it. Now they're having 15 people in an auditorium that seats a thousand and they're selling their facilities. Why? Because the subjective truth of man has no heart to it. It has no soul. There is no power. There is no redemption. There is no possibility for life transformation. And when you abandon the word of God, all that's left is your word and my word. And that is a shaky foundation to build anything. And I am thankful that God has raised up a young man in Derek Bledsoe here who is carrying this 
tradition and carrying this commitment to the next generation to preach and to teach the word of the living God. And I'll tell you, you are blessed as a church to have a 37-year-old pastor who will do that because a whole bunch in his generation are not. A whole bunch of his millennial generation are coming out of seminary and they're going into churches and they're abandoning the objective truth of God and they're wanting to be popular with their culture and you have a young pastor who says no. In 38 years since I became the founding pastor of this church in 1984, sometimes the preaching and the teaching unapologetically of the objective truth of the word of God was not popular. Sometimes it ruffled feathers and it hurt. It hurt me as a human being. It hurt me as a pastor. It hurt, but I had to say, let the ruffling begin. Sometimes there was a parting of ways with people And that hurt. I have the scars to prove it in my heart and in my soul. My family has the scars. My wife has the scars. But we had to agree. If it comes to you or the word of God, don't let the door hit you on the way out. For we will not, we will not abandon the truth of the word of God for you or for anyone. Fads change, culture changes, but God's word never changes. Let me finish with this. If you'll give me six minutes, I'll finish. God's purpose never changes. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. Do you hear what God said? As I have planned, it will be. And as I have purposed, it will stand. In other words, Nothing Tom, Dick, or Harry does is going to subvert my purpose. It ain't happening. Proverbs 33, the counsel of the Lord stands, the plans of his heart to all generations. Now, because God's character never changes, because of his immutability, his purpose never changes. The purpose that God has had from the beginning has not been subverted, and it will not be subverted. And it is based upon two entrances into human history. First of all is that entrance of the Savior Jesus Christ into human history that headed for a cross and a resurrection. Before the cross, everything in human history was leading to that moment in time where forgiveness and sacrifice is made. And everything since the cross of Jesus is leading to that second entry that we call the return of the Savior. And in the meantime, God is gathering himself a people, a kingdom. Who are those people? John 1.12 says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Who are the children of God? According to the scripture, those who have received Christ. But didn't Oprah say that we're all children of God? Yes, she did, but she's just Oprah. That may be Oprah's truth, but it ain't God's truth. God's truth says... Those who become the children of God are those whom God gave the right to become children of God. How does that happen? As many as received Christ. And God is preparing for that moment in time when he comes to receive all of those of all time that were his. The Father is making a way. He's preparing a way. 
And in the meantime, he's asking, who are my people who will hear my call? Who are my people who will not go to the left? Who are my people who will not take a step backward? Who are my people who will stand upon the truth that I have given and not move to the left or the right? No changing fad, no changing philosophy, no worldview will derail the purpose of God. That ought to be comforting to you in Christ. You look around you and you go, man, it's looking bad for the kingdom, isn't it? How many times in 2,000 years have people said it's looking bad for the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, my church will prevail. I will build my church and the gates of hell itself will not prevail. It's looked dark sometimes. Mm. But he is in charge. One of the blessings of doing the Fearless Series for Men was the opportunity to spend a day with Max Lucado. Max agreed with me to sit for an interview on camera for the Fearless Series of Men. For men, because Max is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Most of you don't know that. Most people don't know that. He tells a story on film of 12 years old when he was sexually molested by a grown man and the impact that that had on his life. He's 67 years old now. And he talks about how, you know, I mean, what, a, what an incredibly despicable and, and horrendous, hurtful thing to be taken advantage of that way as a young boy, but how his God has through the years used even that to prove his sovereignty, to prove his goodness, to prove his grace, to prove his mercy. Just like Rodney Wright talked about how God's goodness, when he ran to his brokenness, wrote a new ending. James Janikin, how he moved, not at the end of the table, not in the nosebleed seats, not a member of the family that nobody talks about, but that Jesus says, James, I want to have lunch with you. And Mac puts it this way, and I'm ending the Fearless series, the fifth video, I'm going to end it with a statement. Max said, there's a scripture that says that anyone who comes to God must believe that God is and that God rewards those who faithfully seek him. God's word does say that. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. Then Max says, for years I defined faith as the belief in God. I didn't think it was appropriate for me to stop him and correct him and say, no, Max, faith is taking God at his word, but that's okay. Those of you who have been around here, didn't think that was the right time to, to do that with him, to school Max Lucado. But he said, but I think that scripture says faith is the belief in a good God. Not just belief in God, it's, it's, it's belief in a good God. And you know, it's one thing to believe God created the world. But the New Testament, the Bible invites us to believe in a good God who takes everything that was intended for evil and can turn it into something good. So then Max says, so I would encourage every person, would you be open not just to the idea of the existence of God, but the existence of a God who loves you, a good God? He says, that I believe is where healing begins. Because he is immutable. Because he is Lord of the past. He is Lord of your present. And he will be Lord of your future. 
He is a good God. And though the path today may look crooked, trust Him. Stand upon His word. There will be a time when you are faithful. You look back and go, man, that path was as straight as it could be. But only good God could see that because He put me right where I needed to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you that for 50 years you have proven faithful even when I was not. That you have been proven strong and sovereign even when I was at my weakest moment and weakest point. That when we will embrace the brokenness that is the result of the fall of all creation and run to it, that you meet us there with your grace and your goodness and your restoration. For you are immutable. You are unchanging. And your word is unchanging. And your perspective is unchanging. And your love for those who call you Father in Christ Jesus is unchanging. Thank you for that, Father. May you lift up a broken heart here today that simply needed to have that comfort. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for allowing me to be here with you. God bless you. I reckon you're dismissed. I don't know how they do it around here. I mean, I'm here on Sundays, but I don't know. It kind of looked like everybody's just kind of sitting there. Are we going to stay or what? Was there something else supposed to happen here?